Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Full Stag Journey Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, it's our goal today, uh, The myself and uh, the special guest who's joining me, I'll give him an opportunity to introduce himself in just a moment, to provide you some real, um, actionable, practical information to help you on your journey towards being um, a full-stack engineer. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast before, you know that we've We've said that uh, perhaps the the ultimate goal of being a full-stack engineer may not be an attainable goal. It may be one of those things that uh, just can't be reached, but we still think there's value in the journey. And so that's what we're here to do is to help equip you on your journey. If you're wondering what a full-stack engineer is, I uh, define a full-stack engineer as somebody who's capable of working across multiple silos and moving among multiple layers of the modern data center stack. So joining me today to talk about a specific part of the journey towards being a full-stack engineer is Alex Galbraith. Alex, why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself? Hey, Scott. Thanks very much for uh, having me on the show. Um, my name's Alex Galbraith. I'm a solution architect uh, working for a global service provider. Um, and you can find me on the Twitters at Alex Galbraith, or I also run a blog where I kind of talk about um, whatever's interesting me at the time, um, which is techhead.it, T-E-K-head.it. Great. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. So um, thank you for being on the podcast. And, um, you know, over the last few episodes, we've been diving into some very specific skill sets, uh, kind of, um, you know, coming out of episode six, where I took a moment to look back at the first five episodes and say, you know, these are kind of the common themes that are coming up from people who are on that journey towards being a full stack engineer. And so out of that um, set of common themes, I've pulled out some things that I think uh, we really need to dive into a little bit deeper. And so we had um, Yvonne Papelniak on talk about networking. And um, I've got you on today because we're going to talk about Amazon Web Services or AWS. And you've been publishing some stuff on your site, uh, a multi-part series on um, AWS concepts. So uh, how, how many how many posts are in that series now? Uh, I think I'm up to eight, although there's several more in production at the moment. And I've also done a couple other ones on um, if you're doing the AWS Solution Architect Associate Exam. Um, so there's a couple of posts about kind of study materials for that and uh, and it, kind of tips for the exam and stuff like that. Sure. Um, I'm planning to kind of expand on that as well. Hopefully later on this year, I'm going to be taking maybe the SysOps or DevOps ones and maybe one of the professional ones as well if I get the time. Oh, awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing the notes about that. So what... Just, just tell me a little bit. You mentioned you're a solutions architect for a service provider. What kind of drew you into the AWS stuff that now you are sharing that through your your site? Um, I guess uh, so. My background was um, a bit of a, a, a Wintel bod originally, and then moved into VMware a few years ago, uh, or I say a few years ago. Sorry, <laughs> moved into <laughs> VMware about mm, ten years ago or something like that. Time passes quickly when you're having fun. Um, and uh, and then after that, I kind of got involved in doing a bit of storage, and then and moved into that solution architecture space. And I guess throughout that time, it's been really interesting to do all of that infrastructure piece. Um, but I suppose you know, if I'd wanted to uh, do a career where um, I didn't have to learn very much new, I probably shouldn't have worked in IT. And I think uh, trying to stay with what's on trend. Uh, and making sure that you're staying either on the trend or ideally slightly ahead of it where possible. Um, make sure that whatever happens in your career, you're always going to be kind of protected. Um, and I think it's been pretty obvious for the last few years that um, AWS is is just going to be massive in the future, along with all the other pub- public cloud providers as well. But I think at the moment, AWS is certainly leading the field. So I thought definitely time to get on board with that. And And I suppose I've been kind of lucky with each of the jumps in my career in terms of different technologies um, have been kind of fortuitous. They've just happened at just the right time. And I think in this case, um, the company I was working for at the time um, purchased a, an AWS partner um, and decided that we're going to kind of go full on in that direction. And it worked out perfectly for me because uh, it gave me the opportunity to um, go on some of the training and, and spend some time learning that both in, in the job and outside as well. Oh, that's that, that's cool. And it is definitely uh, fortunate that it aligned well with your career. That's That's something that you know, we've heard a lot of other guests on the podcast share, and that as you're as you're developing your your skill set, one of the things that really helps is when that skill set development aligns with what's going on at your day job. Um, I'm now obviously you have to balance that between investing in where you want to be versus investing where you are, but it's still a, certainly a, a great um, kind of boon 
a boost when where you are and where you want to be are also all lining up with where the company wants you to be as well. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if uh, if you're looking for investment, because I think obviously in our career, you need to invest in yourself. You can't just expect your organization to do it for you. But um, if you're lucky enough for it to kind of the, the stars align, so to speak, and, and they're uh, happy and willing to do that at the same time, then all the better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm really excited about this particular episode because in my mind and maybe this is just maybe this is just me, but in my mind as as we move from um folks who have predominantly focused on on-premises infrastructure and in many of those cases have been very siloed with that on-premises infrastructure. So you've you've been a storage gal or you've been a networking guy or you've been a virtualization gal or you've been a Windows dude or whatever the case may be, right? Um, As we move from that into the public cloud, in my mind, that is a, a real solid manifestation of what I envision a full stack engineer to be. Like when I think about sort of the the people who embody what I'm thinking of, this this sort of nebulous idea that's in my head that I'm foisting on everyone, um, it's somebody who isn't just on-premises and isn't just dealing with one particular type of, of infrastructure, but is also dealing with public cloud services. And there's so many public cloud services. We'll talk about that later on. Like, you know, you log into AWS and it's like, boom, in your face, there's a whole bunch of services. Um, but I'm just curious, like, in your mind, what what sort of conjuring what, what what does it conjure up when we say the term full stack engineer? Oh, that's an interesting one. I, th- I think um, I, I guess becoming a full stack engineer is something that people I, I'd probably say it's maybe something people aspire to uh, or aspire to being throughout their career. I think maybe you know um, the the trying to actually get to that point. Is something that you're going to be kind of constantly working towards. So you might never actually truly get to the point where you can sit down and say to yourself, yeah, okay, I've made it now. I am that full stack engineer. I think maybe like uh, becoming the lots of the stack engineer or something is probably something that's attainable. And the full stack engineer is something we'd always always want to work towards. Um, I've, I guess I've got a slightly um, biased viewpoint on it as well because I start to wonder if maybe the full stack engineer is a bit like what an architect is only at a much deeper level. So as an architect, we have to know quite a lot about um, quite a lot, but not to any particular depth. And I think that full stack engineers are getting to the point where they kind of got those architecture level skills, but they've also got a much more deep dive level of skill in, in multiple areas potentially. Um, and I think that's that's actually awesome for the next generation of architects that's going to be coming through as well because they're going to have such a broad and deep understanding of so many different technology areas. You know, it's going, in terms of companies looking at new people in five to ten years' time, the guys have been doing this day in, day out. I think there's going to be some amazing talent out there. So I think for the industry, it's a, it's a real positive. Um, but I think I've, I've been listening to the show as well, and a lot of people have mirrored the, the way that I've, I've thought as well, which is around, um, you know, there's, a, there's an element of jack-of-all-trades, uh, but I think you still need to have a kind of, anchor one or two skills that you actually that that's your really really deep dive stuff and then you have a really you know decent understanding across the other tech sets mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no i I, th- I think that your your description is probably a lot like you know what i think and and what i've been describing i'm 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 encouraged to hear you talk about you know kind of the architect the, the, this is a blend of let's say an, an engineer and an architect it's it's somebody who's got these really, you know, high level view of all the technologies and how they fit in and and how they relate to each other, but also has, you know, one, two, three, whatever that number is, really, really deep anchor skills that, um, that they, they, they can call upon as well as a, you know, a pretty solid understanding of all these different areas. So it's, it's a little more, I've likened it to a little more than a generalist who knows, you know, a little about a lot, um, but more than a specialist who knows a lot about a little, um, you're yep. kind of somewhere in between, um, but also not tied to any particular silo or not tied to any particular delivery mechanisms. You're not tied to just being on-premises or off-premises. You're not tied to just storage networking, you know, compute. You're not tied to just, um, you know, cloud delivery models or infrastructure or platform or even software as a service, but you've got some, some experience and knowledge across all these and reaching into the application space because I think that's increasingly important. Definitely, I think um, I think you hit on something really interesting there as well, which is 
probably as as human beings uh, and definitely as technologists, we have this kind of slightly tribal mentality, if I'm being polite. Um, you know, we, we do get quite uh, heavy on our opinions about certain technologies, whether that be, you know, Apple versus Android or VMware versus Hyper-V or whatever. And I think if you're going to be that full stack engineer, you maybe need to step back from that tribalism piece and be a bit more technology agnostic as well. Um, you know, whatever's the right tool for the job for that particular um, implementation or that particular project um, is a much, you know, broader way of looking at it as opposed to I'm going to try and cram my favorite technology into whatever it is. You know, every, when, when, when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. I completely agree. I, I definitely think that the the ideal full stack engineer is somebody who is as technology agnostic as possible and can make recommendations based on the problem they're trying to solve, not um, not you know finding the right hole for technology, but instead finding the right technology for that for that problem. Yep. Um, so uh, one one final question, still on the topic of, of full stack engineer, and I think I think I heard you correctly in that. You know, this idea of a full stack engineer may be sort of the, you know, the career unicorn, if you will. Um, <laughs> but it seems to me that there's still value in pursuing it because it, oh, it creates, yeah, so it creates a sort of a, a lifelong attitude of, of growth and, and development. And it sounds like you agree with that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've, um, recently changed roles and I've moved to a company that, um, looks at things like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Gallup strengths. Uh, which is a bit like um, the uh, Myers-Briggs uh, type of solution where, you know, you kind of get pigeonholed to an extent in terms of uh, different skill sets or different uh, ways of learning or different um, personality types. And there was one in there that I think is really, really interesting, and it's something that applies to me when I did the, one of these kind of personality tests. Um, and it's about uh, something called input. Um, and it says um, you're inquisitive and you collect things, and that could be like information, like words or facts or books or questions or whatever, or it could be like tangible objects. I think that full-stack engineer, in a way, is kind of that input uh, personality type because you just want to kind of collect as much information about as many different technologies as you can because it, it interests you to gather that information, and then at some point in the future you'll be able to utilize those different um those different pieces of information that you've gathered maybe in different ways than they were originally uh, came together. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's definitely true. And it's a theme that we've heard echoed from a number of different guests is that, you know, this idea of, of always growing, always learning seems to be a, a key component. So yeah. I, I want to go back just a little bit to something that I, that I said, and I'd love to get your kind of viewpoint on this is that in my mind, branching your skill set into or expanding your skill set into to encompass public cloud services seems to be a sort of a, a quintessential part of being a full stack engineer. Like you might be really, really good with on-premises infrastructure and, and multiple areas of on-premises infrastructure, but for some reason it feels like until you move into working with public cloud services, there's a, there's a, a very significant facet of what I envision as a full stack engineer that's missing. What, what do you think about that? Like, am I just totally nuts or do you think that's, there's some value there? Uh, no, I think you've nailed it. Um, I mean, when I started my career, um, X number of years ago, uh, there was, there were, I suppose there were certain technologies, you know, say Windows or networking that were kind of like the staple diet of the IT pro. Um, and probably to a greater or lesser extent that, that probably still holds true today on the net, especially on the networking side. Uh, but we're, I think we're approaching the point where things like, uh, public cloud, are becoming that bread and butter category. Um, and I suspect probably automation and orchestration won't be that far behind them in a few years' time. Um, and, um, you know, re realistically, we've got things like latency-sensitive applications and all those kind of things that are always going to need to sit locally. So you're always going to need people who have those skills. Uh, but in the same way, we're still, you know, kind of clawing Windows 2003 boxes out of people's hands and mainframes and so forth. But um, that doesn't mean it's going to be the norm. So I think maybe, you know, for the next five, 10 years, hybrid cloud is going to be a, uh, order of the day. Um, uh, and so there will still be those on-prem skills, but certainly as we move forward, that bread and butter piece, I think is definitely going to move towards that public cloud skill set. Um, yeah, I think definitely so. So, so that being the case, you know, if we, if we, if we agree that, in order for us to pursue this idea of being a full stack engineer, in order for us to move down the journey, 
towards being a full stack engineer that we have to we have to write, wrap up some some public cloud services in that then the next question kind of naturally becomes okay which one right so we have <laughs> we have kind of the big 3 you know amazon um and google and azure and you uh, you've talked a little bit about about why you know you in particular went down the AWS route partly because it aligned well with with your business but partly because I think you said you believed it that it, they're kind of the the leader so if somebody is looking at public cloud services and we're going to dive into more detail in AWS you know listeners in case you're wondering you know I'm just kind of setting Alex up to help explain why he went down that path but um, you know if if somebody's looking at this you know where do you feel like AWS is really where they start or are there or might there be reasons why, hey, I need to start with Google or I need to start with Azure? Um, I, I guess it depends. It, you know, typical architect response. It depends, doesn't it? Um, it all comes down to, I think, what is your background as an individual? What are you comfortable with? Um, because it's always easier to take um, existing skills and build on those with something that's more transferable than starting from, you know, completely from scratch. Um, so, like, I, I can play a little bit of the guitar, so um, I can pick up another stringed instrument and, and bash away at it and make some noise that's not completely painful to people. Um, but, but you know, give me a drum kit and I'm going to make a total hash of it and it's going to take me a lot longer to get the hang of it. I think it's probably the same with, with public cloud. Um, you know, if you've got a very strong Microsoft background, for example, um, it's going to be a lot easier for you to pick up um, skills on Azure um, than perhaps on some of the other platforms. Um, similarly, if you've got quite a strong Linuxy background, actually, you know, maybe AWS or Google, Google are going to be more appropriate. Um, so there's probably an element of that. Also, you know, what are the people in your um, peer group doing as well? Because it's much easier to lean on your peers and share notes with each other and, and share tips and all that kind of stuff if, if you're sitting next to each other or whatever or meeting each other on a regular basis. So you don't necessarily feel you're in this kind of um, solo hole trying to do it all yourself. Um, so I guess that's part of it. And then probably one other part would be um, where do you personally see um, your career wanting to head? So for me, I, I saw AWS as a as kind of like a clear market leader there. I'm definitely I'm, I'm cloud agnostic. I would never say, oh no, I wouldn't put in a, a workload on a workload on Azure, and I definitely want to spend more time learning about it. But once I've got those skills in place on one cloud, again, it's going to be much easier to kind of transfer them to another one. Right, right. So just to pull that out for the listeners, I mean, I, I think you and I are in agreement that, you know, you want to look at what makes the most sense in terms of, you know, hey, if you're a heavy Microsoft shop and you're heavily invested in Microsoft technologies, it might make more sense and it might be very familiar to you to start with Azure. On the other hand, if, you know, like in your case, you know, there was already some business aspects that were driving you towards AWS. And so that made a lot of sense to you. So that you go down that route or, or maybe, you know, um, Google kind of <laughs> the redheaded stepchild here. Um, you know, <laughs> maybe they, they, they make a lot of sense to you. Maybe, you know, you're, you're heavily investing in Kubernetes or something of that nature. And, and so the way that Google offers that is, you know, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, do you, do you think that uh, now again for you it was AWS and so that's what we're going to dive into in just a minute. But do you think that that similarly to your analogy about you know learning or being able to you know play loosely um, given uh, a string <laughs> instrument, yeah, right, right, <laughs> being able to play another string instrument since you know some guitar, how, how much do you think that's going to apply to public cloud services as well? Like an IT professional says, okay, I'm going to start out learning AWS because. That's that's where I feel like I need to go first. Um, now I know you haven't spent a lot of time in Azure yet, as I understand. But uh, just kind of off the top of your head, what do you think? You think it's going to be pretty straightforward for them to move over? It's just going to be like sort of syntax and maybe some terminology, or do you think it's going to be more complex? Um, I think to an extent, certainly to get the basics. You know, you're not, you're not going to go from being, say, an AWS expert to being an Azure expert overnight. But I think if you're pretty au fait with um, say AWS and the, the key concepts around it, uh, the concepts around things like um, the way that you do network segregation or the way that you do uh, databases as a service or, or you know all of these different kinds of um, things that you tend to find across different public clouds just in slightly different guises and maybe with slightly different you know little foibles here and there and tweaks here and there but generally they're providing the same kinds of services. Um, so I think you can definitely transfer those skills fairly quickly. Um, I mean, it probably only just takes a few searches on the internet to find, 
you know, compare AWS to, uh, to Azure. Uh, or you know, learn to compare those kind of uh, blog articles, and you'll see there's a lot of similarities. So from that perspective, definitely, you know, the kind of lowest common denominator stuff. Um, I guess where it's less easy is when you start going into um, some of the more interesting things, which might also lead to being potentially. I mean, we're not going to necessarily talk about lock-in today, but um, you know, those kind of uh, very bespoke services that individual clouds are offering, you know, like Amazon Kinesis, just as an example, um, is is one type of technology that's very specific to them. So that's obviously going to be less transferable between clouds. Sure, sure, and that makes a lot of sense. But I guess the the good news is for for listeners is that you know if if you're you're listening to this and you're saying you know I need to add public cloud services to my repertoire. Um, because we're, we believe that's going to be a core part of what makes an IT professional you know, moving forward. It's just kind of one of those things that you have to know. Um, and, and you decide, I'm going to go down the Azure route, or you're going to go down the Google route, or, or you're going to go down the AWS route, as we'll talk in more detail in just a moment. But um, the good news is that you know the, once you have those kind of core concepts down, then you should be um, pretty well positioned to be able to kind of leverage those in learning the differences with the other platforms and then being able to be a little more familiar with all the platforms than rather than just being stuck with one. Keeping in mind, of course, that there are some, you know, services that are very specific to particular cloud providers. Exactly. Um, so honing in a little bit on AWS, you, you know, you and I have both alluded to the fact that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on with Amazon, right? You know, like just a ton of services and some of them are, you know, very, very specific and some of them are a little more generic. Um, so listeners are out there, they're listening, they, they buy into what we're saying in that, okay, I want to add this to my, to my skill set. Where do they start? What are, what are the sort of the key services or concepts that they really need to dive into first? Um, yeah, so that's, that's an interesting one. And it is it, when I first started looking at this, um, I started doing a little bit of online video training um, through Udemy. Um, and uh, the very first video was basically a walkthrough of all the different services and what each one of them did. And by the end of it, I just <laughs> I walked away from my computer going, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, I just checked it today, for example. And in the AWS console, um, there were 55 primary services just on the front page of the AWS console. Um, and then, you know, under each of those, there are potentially multiple subservices and configurations and all sorts of different things that you need to learn. And obviously when you start, it can be, it can be pretty overwhelming. Um, but the thing is, I don't, I don't feel uh, like I need to know every single service within AWS to the nth degree. Um, I was actually, um, I was talking about this with some solution architects at AWS recently. And even those guys who work for AWS are not expected to be experts in every single service. So they, they'll have like a solid understanding of those key services that you mentioned. Um, and then each of them will have kind of specialisms in particular areas like, you know, big data or mobile or whatever it is that's kind of interesting them. Um, so I suppose within that 55 plus core services, um, there's probably about 15 or 20 um, that you would use day to day to achieve kind of ninety percent of all the solutions that you might want to run in a in a cloud, um, or at least the the start of those solutions. And then probably within those, um, there's about half a dozen or so that are actually really really important that you you kind of want to understand from day one. Um, so the f- the first ones would be around networking. So you know it kind of breaks down to the tra- traditional stacks almost in a way. So you've got your networking, security, compute, storage, um, databases, and kind of monitoring and management. Um, so under the networking piece, um, VPCs and and Route fifty three um, are two of the key areas. So VPCs are kind of like virtual networks. Um, so you need to kind of understand how that hangs together because you need to be able to uh, logically separate out your uh, solutions and, and each of the components within those solutions. Um, Route 53, which is uh, interestingly uh, named, obviously after um, DNS uh, port 53 and and Route 66. There's some really funny guys working at AWS, I think, uh, <laughs> coming up with product names. Um, although that's a bit of a trend when you look at the console. Um, security, you need to really understand IAM permissions, which is their uh, basically their security and account management permissions. Um, you don't need to know it like uber uber in depth to get started but you do need to know enough to make sure that first of all when you spin up your first account you don't get completely owned and somebody starts running up bitcoin mines and stuff on your account um and then from there you want to kind of understand how to put in 
um, connections between your different, say, EC2 instances. Um, EC2 is is effectively, if you're if you've got a VMware background, is basically uh, like virtual machines, pretty straightforward, and it's kind of the one of the core services that you build out everything else on top of. Um, then you've got things like EBS and S3 storage. So EBS is block storage, like traditional block storage, just like a VMware data store. And then S3 is object storage. Um, so that's the kind of thing that you might use for storing static objects and media and content and things like that on your sites. Um, databases, obviously, you know, a traditional uh, application is going to have a number of application servers, web servers. And then at the back end, you need some form of data store. So there's a whole load of different uh, databases supported under RDS. So you've got everything from Microsoft SQL through to uh, MySQL. You can even do Oracle on there. Um, although why you'd want to run Oracle on AWS, I don't know. Um, you must have very deep pockets. <laughs> um, and then uh, monitoring. So you need to kind of be able to, you know, once you've spun all this stuff up, you need to be able to actually watch it and see what's happening to your estate. Um, so you've got things like CloudWatch, uh, which allows you to monitor your instances. Um, and cloud trail, which is basically logging. So you obviously want to log everything that's occurring within your public cloud platform because the last thing you want to do is something's happening in there and you don't know about it. So those are probably the the key ones I would say um, for somebody starting out. Those would be the ones to start playing with. Okay, well, that's 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 a really good, um, I mean, a really good concrete list. Like if somebody says, okay, I, I need to go get started on this, they've got some very specific, very you know very direct go look at this and this and this and this so we're listeners I'll, I'll have all this in the in the show notes so if you didn't catch that as Alex was going through it don't worry it's all good we'll have it in the show notes um, but um, so so out of that I'm sure that there are probably some areas that are sort of natural um, you know hey I'm already a networking gal so going down the VPC route and looking at, you know, Route 53 and looking at security groups, that's going to feel very natural to me. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, there's yeah. also, uh, what I found as well is um, just kind of looking at it from a comparison between services that I've worked on in the past and, and looking at it in the public cloud, I found it really interesting because AWS, I think they seem to have like a rule that says, it's kind of like the 80-20 rule. So they'll put kind of 80% of the functionality that you might get out of you know, say a dedicated piece of tin that you would stick on-prem, um, but it's good enough to do most of the jobs that you're going to want it to do. Um, so like, for example, Route 53 does some really cool stuff around um, load balancing and, and bits and pieces even before you start using uh, their Elastic Load Balancing service. Um, and, you know, those kinds of services you'd normally pay a premium for if you're doing it with tin. And it's really interesting to see as you start going through, especially when, you know, you're comparing it to areas that you're quite familiar with, just how much they've put in there, but also potentially which bits they've almost like deliberately left out. Yeah, it can sometimes be as helpful to see what was omitted um, as it is to understand what was included. Yeah. So looking at this this sort of this core list, like, you know, VPCs, Route 53, IAM, EC2, EBS, S3, RDS, CloudWatch, CloudTrail. Um what were some of the, as you started diving into this, what were some of the key challenges that really like, you know, you had a mental roadblock that you had to get over in understanding maybe those decisions like we were just talking about, like why Amazon did it a particular way or, or, or you know, a particular piece of functionality was, was omitted. And, and so you had to kind of like reset your, your mental, you know, picture of how this thing worked. Was there anything in particular that kind of stands out to you or – yeah, so um, I think uh, that's that's an interesting one because um, it kind of led to the main reason why I started that series of blog posts, um, my kind of gotchas and tips blog post series because um, I was going through the course material um, both uh, online and then later on when I was actually face doing some face-to-face -face training um, and every now and then we'd come across something that I just thought, wow, that's kind of like really bizarre. Um, because it's something that was maybe so completely bread and butter um, to somebody who's like a VMware administrator or a Hyper-V administrator, and you're just so used to doing that with on-prem type infrastructures. Um, and then once you're in that cloud space, it's just not the same. So, you know, a couple of examples would be things like um, on EBS volumes, they would have specific uh, EBS volumes is the block storage um, that you that you allocate to individual instances in AWS. Um, so that's like the kind of, you know, operating system drive and data drives and things like that on your instances. Um, and they have caps on the performance there. And 
particularly in the past. I think they've relaxed them a little bit now. Um, but they were doing some interesting things like there were recommendations on the AWS site. That if you wanted to achieve a certain number of IOPS, let's, I'm going to pick a number out there because I can't remember the exact numbers at the time, but um, say you wanted 10,000 IOPS out of a, a, a virtual instance, um, you would actually have to bolt together and do RAID 0, uh, software RAID 0 uh, striping within your guest operating system across multiple EBS volumes. And um, so it's it's little kind of funny things like that that you kind of come across. Um, other examples, even just with EBS, were things like um, if you wanted to increase the size of that um, volume, you would have to stop the instance. You couldn't just kind of hot resize it. And these are the kind of things that you're, as a as a physical infrastructure uh, sysadmin, you're kind of used to doing day to day. And and to find that you actually have to start pulling down bits of your infrastructure to do that in the cloud um, came as a bit of a surprise. But I suppose the flip side of that is. If you're designing your infrastructure for cloud, you wouldn't actually design it in that way anyway. You you need to be designing things that are ephemeral. So actually, it doesn't matter if I have to kill an instance. And I shouldn't really be designing individual instances to do 10,000 IOPS worth of workload because I should be scaling out my workloads across the cloud, which means you're going to get better overall performance. So I suppose a lot of the weird and funny gotchas that I've come across have predominantly been around um, my biases as a as an infrastructure person um, expecting to be able to do things the way I always have as opposed to something that was necessarily actually wrong as long as I'm using the right architecture in the first place. Right. That's a, that's a really good point because if you think about, you know, everybody's going to come into this, pretty much everybody will come into this with some, uh, some sort of these predetermined ideas of what's going on, whether they're coming out of a VMware space or if they're coming in as a networking professional or a storage professional or, you know, a Microsoft professional doing Hyper-V or a Linux person doing KVM or Zen or whatever the case may be, right? They're going to come into it with these sort of preconceived notions of how things are going to work or how things are going to be put together. And in some ways they have to, you know, call upon the the hero of IT professionals everywhere and, and, and call upon Yoda and kind of unlearn <laughs> what they've learned, right? To kind of wrap their head around yep. this this different way of consuming infrastructure and assembling infrastructure components to build what they need to build. Absolutely. Um, I guess the other one is um, there are probably a few different bits and pieces that you start to come across as you go through, uh, and particularly if you're a very cost-conscious home labber like me, um, where you where you don't want to accidentally end up with a big AWS bill. Um, and there are a few little kind of gotchas that you come across which – if you do the wrong thing, you might accidentally end up costing yourself a bit more money than you would expect. So simple things like if you create a VPC, just as an example, um, so that's your, your, that you're effectively your logical boundary for your uh, virtual infrastructure that you're going to create for a specific project or whatever. Um, when you create that VPC, you can choose to create it as a default VPC or a dedicated VPC. Now, as a infrastructure guy, that doesn't really necessarily... Um, it's not immediately clear what that means. What it actually means is every single virtual instance you create from then on will be on physical tin that is dedicated to you, mm. which means that immediately all of the costs for every instance you run on there start shooting through the roof by comparison to running on obviously multi-tenant and infrastructure. Um, so it's just these little teeny tiny things that you come across where, you know, maybe one wrong click and you could end up costing a bit of extra money. But the good thing is when you're practicing this at night, What's the worst case scenario? You spin up three or four instances and they're on the wrong price tier and it ends up costing you like a dollar or two because you're only running them for half an hour or something. Right. So in in the real world, it's not really something to be worried about as a, as somebody testing stuff, but it is something that you need to learn as you go through to make sure that when you're doing this on your on your work infrastructure, you're not spinning stuff up and then ending up costing the company thousands, which is a really good reason for practicing and playing with it as much as you can. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's that's good information to have. So, I wonder, you know, you mentioned a couple times training. I think yeah, I think I heard you call out Udemy. Um, were, were there were there other resources that you found really really helpful? I mean, I've heard you mention face to face training. So, like going somewhere and and you know taking a an instructor led course or, or you know a video course or whatever the case may be. Um, there's there's the online stuff like Udemy or Pluralsight or you know whatever. Um, yep. are, are there other resources that you found really, really helpful? So, so you've, uh, you've covered quite a few of them actually. So, so I should <laughs> okay. probably just skip this. <laughs> no, I'm going to get it. Um, no, I, I actually, um, 
I recall watching a very interesting session, which you've probably forgotten about, but you presented it um, back at the UK VMUG several years ago, and you were talking about different learning styles. So you've obviously got these kind of um, auditory learners and visual learning and, and these kind of things um, for different people. Um, so my learning style is is kind of a bit of a mix and match, but um, I tend to consume video content quite a lot. Um, so I think um, there's a, there's one particular um, very very well known uh, bit of video content um, from the guys at a Cloud Guru. So, um, uh, that's Ryan and Sam Krinenberg and Ant Stanley. Um, they have got some really really good uh, training materials, but they do actually even state themselves that they're quite exam focused. So I think probably the first question I would ask is what are people trying to achieve? So do they really want to learn the subject inside out um, or do they just want to pass the exam because they want to move on to the next part of their career and then start to gain, maybe gain their skills in their next role or whatever? Um, and then the different learning materials that you can use kind of target those more specifically. So the A-Cloud Guru ones are really good if you if you want to um, study towards the exam because they're quite focused on that. But if you want to also have a bit more of a in-depth understanding and a bit more of a broad understanding of the different elements. Um, there's things like uh, Linux Academy and Cloud Academy. Um, so Martin Leggett, who's a, who's a guy who I've met uh, through uh, something I'll touch on in a minute, actually, is uh, Meetups. Uh, but Martin very highly recommends the Cloud, of, uh, Cloud Academy training. He said that was really, really useful for him. Um, but for me, um, the, the video piece is good. Um, I try to read as much as I can as well. So um, AWS white papers, they're a great source of info, but it, you know you kind of do want to, I don't know, poke your eyes out after about half an hour of reading them. So there's some really good information in there, but it is kind of painful. Um, and then there's um, the AWS documentation site is actually, it's a bit of a goldmine. The, the, it, it's not often you say that a vendor's documentation is of particularly high quality, but I do think actually the AWS documentation site, uh, which is um, aws.amazon.com slash documentation. That's actually very, very good. Um, most of the articles are not necessarily written in the, in an extremely dry style. Um, I don't know. They must have different people writing the white papers as they have writing the documentation site or something. So that's been really good. Um, but I guess for me, the other one that I've learned a lot from is uh, meetups. Um, so um, that could be going to AWS meetups, serverless meetups, um, there's one that Joe Bagley runs uh, in the UK called Cloud Camp. Um, and at those meetups, you aren't necessarily always learning specifics about an individual technology, um, although in often, you, in often cases, especially the AWS ones, you are. But um, you're also learning the key concepts to doing cloud infrastructure and cloud architecture properly. Um, and you're learning from other people's mistakes uh, because as, as many of this... Um, of the presenters that I've seen at those kind of events have been standing up going, and this is how we did it, and it was really horrific, so don't do it this way, and this is a much better way of doing it. And those kind of events are really, really good. And then obviously you then spend time in between sessions and after sessions and having beers and stuff with guys um, and girls talking about um, their experiences and the way that they're learning and good you know, tips and, and tricks and so forth and any projects they're working on. So for me, meetups are a really, really good way of learning a lot. Um, and all you have to do is go to meetup.com and you can generally, you know, as long as you're near a reasonably large town or city, you're going to find uh, somebody to talk to. Yeah. And one of the things that I found useful as well were the video recordings from reInvent. Yes. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to watch any of those, but I watched some of the VPC design um, sessions, kind of the 301, 401 level um, yep. pieces, which were I thought were very, very useful. So. They're especially good if you if you come up against a, a particular bit of the technology within AWS and you're like, oh, I really need to learn more about that, or you know, you're trying to build something out and you're wondering why it's not working or whatever. Those reinvent sessions are excellent, and most of them are available on things like YouTube for free as well, which is really good. Um, and then, um, I mean, I've said this about every single technology I've ever worked with. The best, best, best way to learn this stuff though is just hands on. Um, the more time you spend. In the console or, you know, sitting behind the, sitting behind a command line firing API commands out and stuff like that, the more you're going to learn it and the faster you'll learn it, I think. Because if you've done it and you've broken something and then you fix that thing, you're going to remember it a lot better than maybe, you know, reading it out of a white paper. 
Yeah, I think that uh, pretty much every guest we've had on the on the show has echoed that the the hands-on aspect of learning technologies is just is just it's crucial. It's essential. You have to, you have to be able to get your hands on it. And the nice thing about this for, for folks with home labs is that, you know, there's not a whole lot, not a whole bunch of stuff you have to buy um, because you can just, you know, you can just spin it up on demand and then destroy it on demand um, as, as you need it. So I'm, I'm curious as you've been, as you've been working through this and, and, you know, creating instances and, and configurations and topologies to, to work with and learn them, what has been the relationship with sort of automation orchestration along the way? Like it, to me, it kind of seems that these two things go very much hand in hand, but yep. I'm just worried. I'm just wondering if it's me or if that's been your experience as well. Um, so managing a public cloud infrastructure. So AWS being a good example, obviously um, at scale is, is I think unlike managing traditional infrastructure, um, you know, it's okay if you want to spin up a, a small handful of servers, then, you know, if you, you can, and if you're, you know, home labbing or whatever, you can use the portal and pointy clicky is kind of acceptable. Um, uh, but it's not ideal because, um, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the architecture of applications as they sit in the cloud, um, or cloud native applications as the, as the, the term which is bandied around a lot these days. I, I cringe a bit at that one, but I don't know if there's a better one at the moment. Um, but those, those cloud native application architectures, um, lend themselves towards, um, a different way of working. Um, so they're, you know, obviously they're typically made up of a number of like ephemeral instances and then one or more data stores. Um, and because of that ephemeral nature, um, and the fact that you might end up destroying and recreating them many times, you know, during testing and production, um, and because of the fact that, um, you know, for example, at any kind of scale, um, you're, uh, generally always looking to deploy code forward, um, through your different infrastructure pieces and so forth, or your, your different, uh, you know, say dev test or into staging and into live and so forth. Um, they, they don't really lend themselves to that pointy clicky method. Um, you know, automation orchestration at that scale is really the only way to be able to actually manage that effectively. Um, and especially because, you know, we, we all know that IT budgets are reducing and, you know, employers aren't necessarily bringing on loads and loads of additional people into their teams. But as you move into the cloud, you do suddenly find a bit of a, uh, a ballooning of the number of instances and things that you're looking after. So you need a way to be able to manage that effectively. And I think, um, Using automation and orchestration tooling um, is pretty important to that. Um, obviously, I work for a service provider, um, and I've and I know quite a few people in that service provider in, uh, industry working in, in competitors and so forth. And we're all quite open, generally speaking, about the types of tooling that we use and and the processes that we use and things like that. And I, I definitely see a a theme. Um, which is that although we're using these different tools to get the job done, um, everybody's doing it in a very similar way. So, for example, everything gets built using templates. That's a kind of number one rule, I think, for most service providers or managing any public cloud at scale. Um, so that could be in AWS terms, you've got CloudFormation, which is AWS's built-in um, tool set. Um, and then similarly, there are third-party tool sets. So one of the really, really popular ones is, is something called Terraform. Um, so if you're going to learn something, I'd actually probably say um, learn Terraform over CloudFormation because Terraform um, is cloud agnostic, so you can build out stuff onto Azure and Google uh, Compute and so forth. But also because actually, ironically, Terraform tends to release new things for Amazon faster than Amazon do. So whenever Amazon releases a new feature, it can be weeks or maybe even a couple of months before it comes out on CloudFormation. But generally, Terraform is there within a few days. So if you want to be quite bleeding edge in terms of playing with the new features as they come out as well, then that's really a, a, a good tool to start learning uh, in the automation space. Oh, yeah. So that's that. I mean, your, your thoughts echo echo mine in that, you know, as we were talking about it, kind of wrapping your head around the way things need to be designed to be in a public cloud environment and you have to do things a little differently. And I think part of that doing things a little differently is really making automation and orchestration a central aspect of what you're doing, right? You yep. know, so rather than you're spinning up an instance and then going configuring that instance what you want, you need to you need to, you know, create a, an orchestration tool, you know, an Ansible playbook or a puppet manifest or yep. uh, you know, a salt state 
whatever the case may be, and then you apply that against the instance when it comes up so that it just, you know, you spin up the instance in some sort of automated fashion using Terraform, love Terraform, by the way. Um, and then, and then you apply, you know, your, your configuration tool against it. And that way it ends up at the, you know, the desired state at the end. And it's not a whole bunch of manual, you know, as you put clicky clicky, right? So, um, but <laughs> yeah. that's okay. By the way, I use the same term clicky clicky. So we're good. <laughs> um, all right. So I want to make sure that we don't run, run too long here. And, and plus, um, you know, just a little uh, stepping outside the fourth wall there. Um, you know, I'm getting kicked out of my recording studio in a few minutes um, because, <laughs> because I'm not at my house. Um, so anyway, so uh, I was just wondering, um, Alex, you know, as, as we wrap up, um, you know, are there, I'll throw a whole bunch of questions out here and you just kind of, you know, pick one that, that mix, but I wonder like, are there any additional sort of technologies that, that you think kind of naturally fit with, with learning to work in the public cloud service? You know, we've talked in, in, in previous episodes about how, finding the right synergy between the, the projects that you're learning, not only with what you're learning yourself, but also having that synergy with what your team is learning or how your business is going. I'm wondering, you know, are there, are there the technologies that you think kind of have a really strong fit with moving into the public cloud space? And if so, what those might be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think you've already touched on one set of technologies, um, which is around that config management piece. Um, so you've obviously got um, Ansible, SaltStack, Chef, Puppet, Puppet. Sorry, um, I think with with any of those, though, um, you know, it doesn't actually matter that much which one you choose. Again, kind of going back to our original discussion about um, transferable skills. I think you know, pick one, learn it, and then you know, if you if you then need to tweak the way that you work to be able to work with another one of those tools later, then you know, all, all the better. Um, you know, it's not not a big deal. Um, I guess the other way in, t- in terms of even just automation land, don't try and boil the ocean, you know, um, start looking at simplistic things to be able to automate. Um, and from there, um, build up a library of, of the types of tools that you might work with or, or of, uh, scripts that you've created and things like that. Um, and I suppose when you talk about libraries and breaking things down and, and automation, another one which jumps out immediately is obviously going to be container technologies. Um, so again, if you're going to pick the, the big daddy of the container world at the moment, Docker, you know, you're not going to go wrong to learn a bit about Docker. Uh, but once you're going to start spinning up lots and lots of containers, then you need to be able to manage them. So again, um, kind of looking at the management and automation piece around that. So Kubernetes or, uh, Docker Swarm or Mesosphere doesn't, again, it doesn't matter which one you pick. I don't think just pick one and spend time on that, whichever one kind of shouts at you most and whichever one, um, you can find the most resources um, in your circle of uh, colleagues, friends, people that you work with, people you know on the internet, that kind of thing. Um, you know, just pick one and work with that. Um, and then I suppose, you know, you've kind of got something that needs to gel all of those together, um, which is, uh, you know, if we're, without jumping down the DevOps track too much at this point, but, um, you know, DevOps is a, is a big buzzword at the moment. And um, you kind of want to start looking at, how does that DevOps process work? Um, what are the tools involved? What are the common ones that jump out when people start talking about DevOps? So um, I think you've mentioned before that you're a big Git fan. So having a basic understanding of Git, I think, you know, going back to what we said earlier on about um, bread and butter technologies, I think that's definitely over the next few years, that's going to be kind of every infrastructure guy needs to know Git. Um, possibly other things like um, continuous integration technologies like Jenkins, uh, or some of the other alternatives. Again, just trying to learn the key concepts that are going to hang that entire infrastructure together. And as long as you understand one in each of the columns, so to speak, it doesn't actually matter what that what the content of that column is. As long as you have a bit of a general understanding in each of the columns, you're going to be able to put together a, a, a kind of end-to-end process and understand that uh, front to back. And then going back to the uh, the original point about that full-stack engineer, it's a pretty broad skill set that you have to have. So, um spend your time where you think you're going to get the most value. Um, yeah. No, that's, that's perfect. I mean, that's a, that's a great list of sort of, uh, you know, uh, ancillary resources or, you know, kind of adjacent technologies that, that are going to kind of follow you on this journey as you move more and more into the public cloud, you're going to naturally, you're going to find yourself wanting to, to leverage and learn and use these configuration management tools and these, um, you know, and containers and container management tools and, and, um, you know, embracing some of the concepts and, 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 uh, cultural ideas behind DevOps and all this kind of stuff. I completely agree. So, 
Um, so that's that's really, really good information. Thank you, Alex. Um, so uh, I want to go ahead and begin wrapping up. Um, Alex, would you want to share again where the listeners can find you online in case they want to, uh, you know, stalk you online or something? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, on Twitter, it's at Alex Galbraith. Uh, and my blog is techhead.it. That's techhead with a K. Um, and if you don't mind me being a, a wee bit cheeky, I'm going to uh, quickly plug another couple of projects that are probably reasonably relevant to our discussions today. Um, one of those is the uh, Open Home Lab um, website. Uh, and the whole idea behind uh, that, it's a, it's a Wikipedia site or wiki site uh, where people can come and contribute stuff that um, relates to uh, home learning, education, home labs, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that doesn't just mean a vSphere home lab. It also means Hyper-V. It also means cloud uh, because obviously as we move forward, we're going to be needing to learn more and more of these different technologies. Uh, so the idea of that site was that people could come and contribute um, their experiences and their advice and things like that about how to achieve these um, in one place. Um, and from that, we've actually started a, a, a podcast that we're now just about to record episode three, I think, um, called the Open Techcast, which again, we're kind of digging into those educational pieces um, as well as just having a general bit of a, a yak between four guys from the UK. So, um, yeah, I definitely would plug those. That's openhomelab.org and opentechcast.com. Okay, great. We'll, uh, we'll be sure to include those in the show notes as additional resources. And, uh, that I'm happy that you mentioned them. I'm more than, more than willing to include any additional resources that, uh, that, you know, listeners will, will find useful. Um, so a great, fantastic, um, chatting with you, uh, Alex, really appreciate it. Uh, listeners, thank you once again for uh, tuning in to another episode of the Full Stack Journey. Appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope that you found uh, this episode on uh, diving into AWS with uh, Alex uh, helpful. So be sure and give him a follow on Twitter or hit up his website or visit some of the other resources that he mentioned. Um, and uh, as always, you'll be able to uh, get the podcast off of uh, the website, fullstackjourney.com. You can subscribe to the webcast, uh, the podcast, excuse me, through uh, iTunes. Um, and uh, you can uh, provide feedback uh, to the Full Stack Journey via Twitter at uh, FSJ Podcast. So Full Stack Journey Podcast um, is the handle. You're also welcome to hit me, the host of the Full Stack Journey, Scott Lowe, um, at Scott underscore Lowe on Twitter and my website, blog.scottlowe.org. So thanks again for listening, and uh, we hope you guys have a great day. 